You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. What I've been doing uh, in our study in Ephesians is I've been making these little green cards. Sometimes they're white, but they have our scripture references that we'll be going over. Now is the time to get up and get one. I think they're on the table right there uh, where the camera is. And so if you want one to follow along, uh, feel free to grab one. This will let you know where we're going. And I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, we're looking at Paul's prayer uh, in verses 15 through 19, uh, or 23, but we're just going to be concentrating today on verses 15 through 19. I want to say this, prayer is absolutely essential. And Paul here is praying, Paul's prayer here is for these believers. Um, his prayer includes thanksgiving and what is known as petition or requests. Last week, we saw what Paul was thankful for regarding these Ephesians believers. He was thankful for their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love, which was directed towards all of the saints. And so if you weren't here for that, I would encourage you to look up on YouTube or Facebook uh, to see that, um, because we are to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and our love. We, are, we demonstrate that we have been changed because of the love that we have towards one another. Today we're going to see what Paul's desire for them and for us by extension is. Paul is praying certain things that are burdened on his heart and so we're going to see those. So let's read this passage. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15. This is the very word of God. It says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might." This ends the reading of God's word. Let's look to him because we desperately need him if we're going to understand this and apply it to our lives. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for your word. We are lost without it. We would not know what right and wrong is, and so we thank you for it. I pray that you would instruct us. I pray that you would build us up today. I pray that you would, as Paul prayed, that we would get it. Lord, we so need to get the truths that are in uh, this book of Ephesians, Lord, because it would absolutely transform our lives. And so, Lord, I know that the enemy is present with us as well, uh, seeking to confuse, seeking uh, to downplay um, the importance of this, seeking to snatch away the truths, Lord, and say that's not important, uh, to get us to think about what we're going to eat this afternoon or the games that are on or whatever it is, Lord. I pray, God, that you would focus us uh, for the next 50 minutes, Lord, uh, as we uh, continue to sing to you as well, Lord. And I just pray, God, that you would help us to hear you, to have eyes to see you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we look at this prayer, one of the very first things that I want you to notice is who he is praying to. 
Okay. Now I know that they may go without saying, obviously he's praying to God, uh, but I want to be careful uh, because of the fact he's praying to uh, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. And this, I want to say, is the only way to pray. This is the only person that we pray to. This designation of the God of our Lord Jesus Christ links the Father with the Son. They, they are together. God's son it excludes every other God. Basically, Paul addressing God in this way is saying, in case you were wondering, I am praying to the God of the Old Testament, who in the New Testament has sent his son and identifies with his son as his equal. This is the only God. I'm not referring to any other God. This is important, okay? And the reason that this is important because I don't know if any of you heard the prayer that was used to open up the 117th Congress uh, on Monday, January 4th. Um, this is our legislative branch, one of our legislative branches. These are the people who represent us. And they opened up in prayer and there was a, a representative from Missouri, Emmanuel Cleaver. Um, and uh, as I was listening to his prayer, I, I couldn't believe it. Um, he's a congressman. He's an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church. And as, at first, when he was praying, I'm thinking this is pretty good. He was actually quoting um, the ironic blessing in Numbers chapter 6, which we close almost every service with, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And I'm like, that's great. But this is how he concluded his prayer. He said this, quote, we ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and God known by many names and by many different faiths, a man and a woman. End quote. That is how he ended the prayer. A man and a woman to the monotheistic God, Brahma, in an effort to be religiously and gender inclusive, his prayer, and I'm not trying to be unkind, but I want you to notice this. His prayer was a joke. It was a joke, and in the end, it was to absolutely no one. He might, might as well have been praying to the great spaghetti monster in the sky, because this is not how the true God identifies himself, okay? We are commanded to pray to the Father of glory in the name of the Son, through the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That is how we are to pray. And this is what Paul does here. He is praying to the only true God. And when you pray to the only true God, he hears you, okay? If you're praying to some made-up gods, he's not going to hear you. And by the way, amen is an actual word which derives from uh, the uh, Latin and the Greek and the Hebrew and means so be it. That's why we end our prayers. So be it or let it be. A woman, on the other hand, is a nonsensical term. It, is a, it, it, it's, it means nothing. It's, it's, it's pure nonsense. Well, technically, it does mean something. If you put an A in front of something, it negates it. So a woman means no woman. So actually, in an effort to include women, this prayer actually excluded women. So it, it makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, but that's the direction that our country is going in. All this to say this, God does not care about your political correctness. He doesn't. But he does care that you and I know him and that we understand all that he has done 
for us and the resources that are available to us, his holy, adopted, and redeemed children. He wants us to get that. And that is what this prayer that Paul prays for them is mainly for. <clears throat> we see this as he gets into this prayer because he prays first that the Father of glory may give to them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul is praying for understanding and knowledge that they would know something. I, I want you to get this, Paul is saying, and I'm praying to God that you would. He wants them to have wisdom, and wisdom is that, that deep insight into truths and also the ability to apply those truths that you learned to everyday situations. It means nothing if you don't apply it. You just know a bunch of stuff, that's it, but you don't know how to correctly apply it. And then he also prays that the knowledge of Christ would be further revealed to them. Once again, I say it again, Satan wants to hide these things from us. And Paul is praying that they would be revealed to us. He's basically praying for them to know who Jesus is and all that Jesus has done for them and us by extension. I want you to notice also that this prayer is not that they would have more of Jesus or that they would have more hope or that they would have more riches or more power. He prays that they would really know who Jesus is and that with him come all of those things. They come together. The hope, the riches, the power are already available. They just need to realize that they're there and take hold of them as they live their lives. The story is told of William Randolph Hearst, who at one point, I guess, owned a quarter of the world's art. A quarter of the world's art. He had an extensive art collection. But he was reading about this extremely valuable piece of art. And he was just taken by it. And he's like, I have to have this piece of art. I have to have it no matter what. I don't care what the cost is. I need to have it. But I don't know where it is. And so he sent out a team which scoured all of the, uh, of the museums in the area and beyond and did all of this research. And after months of painstaking research, they came back and they said, you own it. It's in one of your warehouses and it's been there for years. Okay? This is what Paul's point is. Paul's point is that we are, are, are praying and looking all over for what we already possess. It is there already. Uh, we don't need more hope. We don't need more riches. We don't need more power. We already have all of these things in abundance. We just need the wisdom and the insight to see and recognize these things and then put them into practice to use them. We need to pray. I'm telling you, we need to pray for ourselves and we need to pray for each other that we would get this, that we would truly know who Jesus is, that we would truly recognize that we are united with him and that everything that Jesus owns, we own as well. We need to get that. The temptation, I'm going to tell you, and maybe you can identify this, but the temptation is to live like spiritual paupers 
to, to, to just weekly go through our days afraid of what others may think of us or do to us if we take a stand for what is right. We're tempted to walk around with no confidence at all in God, uh, to do anything in the lives of our, of our neighbors and our fellow classmates and our, our co-workers. To many, Jesus is just a, a concept. He, he's just a Sunday school lesson. He's not real and therefore he possesses no real power. And therefore we don't even try to temp, uh, t- tap into that power because we don't really believe that it's there. Think about how many, I was thinking about this this week, how many movies um, you can find in Hollywood that are centered around the theme uh, of something that was hidden uh, or unknown, but once revealed, uh, just, uh, just changed everything, right? There's so many themes. I'm going to give you a couple uh, silly ones here, right? Dorothy, trying desperately to get back to Kansas, right? And she's trying everything to get back there. And then how do I get back there? And seeking all this wisdom. And then finally she's told that the power to get back to Kansas you've had all along has been in your shoes. And as soon as she utilizes those, she's back home. Or I think of, uh, of Simba in The Lion King, right? He's living as, an, as a fugitive, not realizing that he is the king. Or in the movie Tangled, Rapunzel is is living uh, a defeated life, held in ignorance until she realizes that she is the princess. Or think of Luke Skywalker, right? In Star Wars, has no idea the power that he has until this little green guy, Yoda, says, hey, here's what it is, and shows him how to use that power. Or think of the Avengers and the power that was in the Infinity Stones that they had no idea the power that was there. But once they realized that, they were able to, to use those. These stories draw us in because I, I think that deep down we all along, we all long for power, that, 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 that ability to do heroic things like these characters in these movies do. I remember in the 80s, I remember walking out of movie theaters af- after an action movie or something like that, um, just ready to take on the world, like, right, ready to learn karate, right, so I can defeat anyone, ready to uh, know how to shoot a gun as I'm traveling through the sky, right, or to leap from building to building, all because I wanted to make a difference in the world, like I thought that these characters were making. All of those stories that we just talked about are fictitious. They're not real, but Jesus is real. Jesus is real, and so is everything that he offers us. We have countless stories of, of, in the Old and the New Testament of, of how uh, people, when they finally realize who God was, the power that came with that, the, 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 the courage and the ability to do absolutely the impossible. I think of people like, like um, Moses, who was called, who, who fled Egypt, right, for his life. And then he had an encounter with the great I am, with God. And God said, now I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to stand before the most powerful ruler in the known world. And I want you to tell him, let my people go. He knew who God was and he was empowered to go back. I think of the lone pro- uh, prophet Elijah, who stood against 400 prophets of Baal because he knew who God was. I think about Daniel 
and his, his, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, who were threatened by kings that if they didn't obey, that they would be thrown either into a fiery furnace or into a lion's den. And yet they stood up against the king. They were empowered, but why? Well, they tell us in their own words, you don't have to turn there, but Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 and 18, um, after being told to either bow or burn, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set we're not going to do it. Boldness and confidence in God. And Daniel, giving an overall commentary of these heroic deeds in Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, says this, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The people who know their God will stand firm and take action. And I love, did you hear what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God whom we serve, right? The God whom we serve is able. He's been faithful to us. He will deliver us. We're not worried about you. There's many more stories in the uh, Old and New Testament that we could talk about, but I just want to give you one from the New Testament. It's one that I know that I've talked about several times um, uh, in this church before, but it bears repeating. You don't have to turn there. It's John, in John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, because I'm not going to read anything. I'm just going to tell you what the story is, and you can reference it later. The situation is that Jesus is in the garden, and he's praying. He's about to be crucified, and then he stops praying because the night is lit up. It's the middle of the night and it's lit up by these 500 Roman soldiers that are coming into the garden. Trained Roman soldiers, okay? And they got their torches to light the night. And they're all there to beat Jesus and his disciples into submission in case they resist. And Jesus comes out and he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus says two words, I am. And at that name, I am, all 500 soldiers draw back and fall to the ground like dead men. Helpless, pushed over by the name of God. And then they get back up. And Jesus is like, who are you looking for? At that point, Peter takes up a sword, and he cuts off a guy's ear. Now, most likely, Peter was not aiming for the ear, right? He was probably aiming for the head. But the point is this, that Peter is now committed to take on all 500 trained Roman soldiers. And you say, what gives him that boldness and that confidence? And it's the fact that he knew whose presence he was in, right? And if he got into any trouble, he could just call upon Jesus and Jesus could bowl him all over. It gave him incredible, incredible courage. Now, of course, Jesus stopped him, um, but his courage carried over into the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit came. And it is even recorded in extra biblical materials talking about his martyrdom. He was faithful to Jesus to the end. Paul here prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened 
And I don't think that you can read this first part of Ephesians without keeping the last part of Ephesians, namely the armor of God in mind. Uh, Because we are in a spiritual battle. And if you don't realize that, then you're probably losing, okay? We are in a spiritual battle. Our struggle, our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's not against physical beings. It's not against that impossible boss at work. It's not against that cult uh, that seems to be rising in popularity. It's not against that opposing political party. That is not where our fight is against. Our fight is against an unseen enemy who is way stronger and way more clever than we are. And we defeat him only by tapping into the power that is already available to us. That's the only way that you can win. That's why we spend uh, 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 time in between services crying out to God in prayer. Because it's not strategies that are going to win. It's not like seven steps to a better church that's going to do this. How to increase. I get this stuff on uh, my Facebook feed all the time. How, how this one pastor, I increased uh, the numbers of my church from zero to 200 in less than a year. Now that's not what we're talking. We're talking about prayer coming and praying to God. Satan's big strategy, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to reveal how he does this, is what he does uh, is he tries to keep that power in those resources hidden from us. He tries to give us eyes that cannot see to blind. Don't look over there. Don't look over there. No, 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 no. Don't because we might tap into that. After all, if you don't know something is there, then you can't use it. If you don't know something is there, you can't use it. Let me just give you a little example of what I mean. I am a very, very slow reader. I've always struggled to get through books. Um, uh, there's a lot of books that I want to get through. Uh, uh, several years ago, I started to get electronic books on Kindle, which I love because now I can carry, you know, 300 books onto an airplane, right, uh, and, and not even know it. Um, and so I'm reading through these books, and I'm still struggling. And then I realized at the bottom of my Kindle that there's this little thing that says text to read. And I tapped it, and it read it to me. And it could read it to me either at half speed or full speed or 1.5 speed or two speed or three speed or four speed. Suddenly, I was getting through. Like, I got through. This is impossible for me. I got through 40 books this past year, right? I didn't know that that was there. But once I did, I was able to use it. I was able to use it. Well, here's how the enemy comes to us. You're weak. You're so weak. God is not for you. God doesn't even know that you exist. God certainly does not care about you. I want to tell you what, if you make a stand at work or at school, you're going to fail and you're going to look like a fool in front of everyone. So don't even bother. Those are the lies of the enemy. And so Paul prays that we would be aware of three main things in this text. The hope to which we've been called, the riches of his inheritance, and the power that is available to us. We're only going to cover the first two today, and we're going to save the last one uh, for next week as we talk about the power that's available to us. So first, once again, in verse 18, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. I want you to think very carefully about what I'm about to say. I'm going to assure you that if you've been in the church for any length of time, that this is going to be nothing new to you. It's not going to be anything that you haven't heard before. 
But you and I need to get this if you and I want to live a victorious Christian life that sees hundreds of people come to Christ and grow in him and that sees strongholds broken down both in our lives and in the lives of those around us in Galveston and beyond. Here's what we need to know. We already know that this life is filled with ups and downs. We know that some days seem utterly hopeless and we just want to give up. But our great hope lies in the fact that you and I have been recognized and called by God Almighty. He knows your name. We have been recognized and called by God Almighty. Think about that. I want to encourage you right now to actually think about what that means this week. Today, throughout the week, what does that mean that I've been called by God Almighty? Out of all the people in the world, you and I have been called out by God to be included in his family, to be included in his kingdom, and to be included in his army. We've been called out to these things. He has called us to be his own, I just got chills, treasured possession. God treasures you. I look at myself and I think, man, (laughs) that's crazy. But God treasures me. He treasures me as his own uh, treasured possession. And he wants, he's called me to stand firm and to fight He has not called us to anything light or small or insignificant. It's an amazing and high calling that God has called us to, which carries with it the power to accomplish it and also the promise of a great reward in the future. We could literally spend hours talking about the call of God because it's everywhere in the Bible. But for the sake of time, I just want you to turn to one passage, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 39. This is just such a tremendous passage. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 39. Here Paul talks about, you'll see, as you're listening or as you're reading along, you'll hear the word hope, 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 hope over and over again. You'll hear the word calling as well. Uh, So, which is what he's praying that we get, the, the hope of his calling. So, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Once again, let me just stop there. We know that this world is filled with a lot of pain and suffering. And God recognizes that. And God promises us it's going to get a whole lot better. Just endure. There is a glorious future prepared for you. And that's where our hope lies. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Those are two themes that are talked about in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, uh, who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That, beloved, is the hope. It is the promise to those who are called by God that all things will work together for our good. Now listen uh, to verse 29. He says this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, another thing that we saw in Ephesians 1, uh, to be conformed to the images of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There we have it. Our great hope is that we who have been called by God and are declared to be holy and righteous before God, which is absolutely essential if we want to see God, are guaranteed that one day we will have a glorified body which will no longer be subject to disease, to depression, and to death. Because of this calling, which brings us hope, Paul continues on with a question in verse 31, and he says this, What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? I hope you understand that that is a rhetorical question, and the answer is absolutely no one and nothing can stand against us if God is for us. God is on your side. God is committed to you. Once again, that's a crazy thought. God is committed to us. And his commitment to us is shown in the next several verses. Listen to how committed he is to you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will not he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God was willing to sacrifice his very own son, how in the world would he not go all the way? How in the world? I mean, that demonstrates fully his commitment to you. I'm all in, God is saying. He loves us. Verse 33, this chapter ends with just this amazing truth. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Remember how Satan was just like, you're, you're a failure. You're useless. God doesn't care about you. Who will bring any? Look at what you just did. There's no way that God loves you. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for you, for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written for your sake? We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the hope to which you and I have been called. We have been called by God, purchased by his son's very own blood, members of his kingdom, rulers, uh, members of his family, rulers in his kingdom, and mighty soldiers in his army. So this is the first thing that Paul prays for, that the Ephesian believers would get. And this is what he prays that we would also get as we're reading this 2,000 years later. When we get this, everything changes. Everything changes. This is empowering. You can talk to your neighbors and your coworkers and your fellow students without fear because God has called you and he is with you. You can take a stand against an evil system and not worry about what will happen to you because God has called you and God is with you. You can push through that debilitating disease because God has called you and will one day remove all pain and all suffering from your body. In this hope, we have been saved by the God of hope. Well, the second thing that Paul prays for is that they would understand what are the riches of his, glor- of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Before the break, the Christmas break, we talked about this inheritance that we get as the people of God. And we said, yes, yes, yes. It does include a, a dwelling place in heaven one day where the, the streets are gold, right? And, and um, there's no more pain and no more sickness and where we're reunited with our, our, our loved ones that have gone on before us in Christ. Yes, we get all of that. And we also said that there's some ambiguity when he's talking about this inheritance in verse 14 and now here, uh, and namely the ambiguity is this, is Paul talking about what we inherit or what God inherits? And the answer is yes, okay? It is both. And I think that these two are bound up together. You cannot get one without the other. I think Paul has both of these inheritances in mind. If we're talking first about what God inherits, which I believe, once again, is part of the meeting, then he is praying that the readers would understand and appreciate the wonder, the glory of what God has done in entering uh, into possession of his people, the church, and the immense privilege that it is to be called the people of God. Okay? Um, This truth of God of us being God's possession is seen particularly in Romans chapter 9. I want you to turn there with me. Romans chapter 9 is a very difficult passage. I want you to see this for yourself. Here Paul is talking about how God uh, is like a potter fashioning people uh, for whatever use he determines. And so beginning in verse 21, he says this, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order that he might make known, listen to this phrase, the riches of his glory. That's our phrase from Ephesians 1.18. For vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called not only from the Jews but also from among the Gentiles as indeed he says in Hosea listen to this those who were not my people 
I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not the people of God, there they will be called sons of the living God. Isn't that awesome? They will be called my people because I own them. They are my treasured possession. You've heard me say it many times before, and you'll hear, hear me say it many more times. The greatest promise in the Old Testament and the New Testament is this. When God said, I will be their God, and they will be my people. There is a double possession going on. God owns us, and we own God. God treasures us, and we treasure God. We all want to be loved. We all want to be wanted. Love, I believe, is what motivates people to action. When people feel unloved, when people feel unwanted, then they begin to lose all hope of living. What could be a greater motivation to action than understanding that the God who made all things, sustains all things, knows all things, knows and loves you. What could be a greater motivation than that? And the answer is absolutely nothing. You have immense value. You are, my wife loves to say this, you are a big deal to God. He loves us. That is a powerful, powerful truth. So that is us as God's inheritance, but what about God as our inheritance. Well, looking at that same phrase, the riches of his glory, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Ephesians 3, 8 through 12. Here Paul, talking about his call to preach, here's what he says. To me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages, who, uh, uh, in, for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he uh, has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. There is that motivation, that boldness that comes from understanding these things. In fact, if you're still in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, what we see in the next couple of verses is that Paul breaks forth into a prayer again. He's told them in Ephesians chapter 1, he's told them some amazing truths, and then he stops and he prays that they would get this. And then he tells them some more amazing things in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and then he stops just before he's going to get into the practical and say, here's how you live it out in day-to-day -day life. He stops and he prays again, and it's beautiful. Listen to what he says in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knee before the Father. That's prayer. And what is he praying for? Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend 
with all the saints, and listen to this, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. People, God really wants us to get this. I mean, really, really wants us to get this. He wants us to live powerful, effective lives. And we will when we get this and apply this. I want you to turn to one more passage as we close here. Speaking once again that phrase, the riches of his glory. And the passage is at Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 27. Colossians 1, 25 through 27. If you've ever read the book of Colossians and Ephesians, you would know that these are very, very similar books. The reason I bring that up is because if you, if there's some ambiguity in one of those books, you might be able to look at the other one to see if that ambiguity is cleared up. There's several examples of how that is done, and I think the one that we have before us is a good one. Once again, what is the inheritance that he's talking about? This glorious inheritance in the saints. Okay, Uh, we see here, once again, listen to the similarities. He's talking about his calling. He's talking about the mystery that was hidden before, just like he was in, in Ephesians. And so here's what he says, beginning in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully Known, right? We just, that known, known, known. He keeps saying it over and over again. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. It's made known to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of the glory of this mystery. There's that phrase, the riches of the glory, right? Of this mystery. And what is it? Which is Christ in you the hope of glory. What is the riches of his glory? It is Christ in you. Christ living in us. Uh, Christ um, possessing us. The greatest riches that you and I could ever have is Christ. It's Christ. Think about it. The one who withstood the greatest opposition ever in the world. The one who confounded all of his enemies with his words. He just shut them up. The one who healed the sick. The one who raised the dead. The one who reached out to the poor and the marginalized and the outcasts. The one who created all things sustains all things, and knows all things. He lives in you. Do you ever think about that? He lives in you. And as a result of that, don't ever, ever say that you can't. Don't ever say you can't. You can. You can. You can do all things through him who lives in you and gives you the strength to do it. Don't ever say that you can't. That's what we do. I can't, I can't do this. If I stand, this is what's going to happen. If I make a stand, if I say something, this is what's going to happen. Don't ever say that. You can. 
Well, we're out of time today. Next week, we're going to see the last thing that Paul prays for, namely the power that is available to us. And it's incredible power. We're going to see what that power is rooted in. But right now, in preparation for next week's sermon, I want to end with Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, just before he gets into how we're to live out these truths. Here's what he says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So be it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths, Lord. And God, we are not going to get them at 45 minutes on a Sunday morning. Satan is, as we said before, he is here and he is trying to steal these things from us. And I pray, God, that we would uh, this week, tonight, this afternoon, the rest of this week, that we would think about these things, that we would ponder, what does it mean that Christ is in me? What does that enable me to do, to say? I pray, God, that I would get this, Lord, and I pray that you would, that your spirit would sweep through this church, Lord, that everyone here would get it, that they would recognize what their role is in the body of Christ, Lord, and that we would just wreak havoc in the kingdom of darkness, Lord. And I pray, God, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this in the name that is above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen.